0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Geek Tastic Dad podcast. My name is Jason, I'm your friendly neighborhood geek and father of a daughter. In this episode, I'm going to combine chapters 7 and 8 of the Player's Handbook. Chapter 7 deals with things like your ability scores, advantage versus disadvantage, ability checks, and saving throws. Chapter 8 will guide us on adventuring topics such as the passage of time, movement, your environment, and so on. If you would like to visit me on social media or send me an email, point your favorite web browser to geektastic.link slash contact. You can support my podcast by going to geektastic.link slash support. If you'd like to leave me a voicemail and possibly have it played on my next episode with your permission, of course, visit geektastic.link slash voicemail. Of course, all of these links can be found in the show notes. Um, I urge you to like and subscribe my podcast on your favorite app. Also, feel free to share it on social media, email it to your friends, play it on a loudspeaker. I don't care. Anyways, thank you for joining me. Now let's get started. It's time for another episode of. geek <laughs> okay so this time i with the geek um it seems that disney plus has gone a little marvel crazy according to a den of geeks article disney plus has announced the release of uh x-men 97 the beloved 1997 x-men cartoon so it's kind of a reboot uh moon knight which should be released sometime in 2022 she hulk also coming in 2022 miss marvel Uh, coming the summer of 2022, uh, What If Season 2, Echo, Spider-Man Freshman Year, I Am Groot, Ironheart, Agatha House of Harkness, Marvel Zombies, and Secret Invasion. Now while I'm super happy these are all coming to be, I'm also a bit concerned that Disney Plus might be overdoing it just a little bit because for someone like me who has limited TV time, this is a bit overwhelming. Nonetheless, I'm excited to see these shows start rolling out and see if they're any good. Alright, next up. It appears that Critical Role may have some competition coming November 22nd, 2021. I have a Nerdvana article linked in the show notes where you can read a bit more about this. So I'm a fan of Critical Role, but I'm also interested in seeing how this pans out. It seems they're putting their own spin on it, advertising, bringing together comedians and content creators, whereas Critical Role is a group of quote, nerdy ass voice actors. I'm willing to be able to try, but I feel my heart will always belong to Matt Mercer and his merry band of misfits. So for my last topic, uh, Star Trek Prodigy. So I've been watching Star Trek Prodigy and have to admit I'm really enjoying it. Um, Lower Decks is the other animated Star Trek series I like to watch, but it's rooted in more slapstick comedy, whereas Prodigy is actually trying to tell a genuine Star Trek story. The icing on the cake for me is that Kate uh, Mulgrew is playing the hologram version of Captain Chainway. Uh, I'm curious to see how this characters how the characters develop because right now uh, the character Dal is sort of a dishonest uh, narcissist, <laughs> but it uh, leaves a lot of room for growth. I've added a link to the first look at Star Trek Prodigy on the star Trek.com website in the show notes, and I recommend you watch the videos and take a look. So that concludes what the geek for this episode. Moving on. All right, thank you for joining me. Or if you're a returning listener, thank you for joining me again. As I mentioned in the intro, I'll be covering two chapters in this episode. The first being Chapter 7, which is all about abilities basically. Ability scores, ability checks, advantages versus disadvantages, skills, and so on. So we've talked about ability scores quite a bit throughout this run. Uh, I'm going to drill down on it a bit more. As you know, there are six ability scores, which break down your character's physical and mental characteristics. All creatures within the game have these six ability scores, including NPCs or non player characters, as well as creatures, animals, beasts, fiends, undead, and the list goes on. The six ability scores are strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. So, just briefly go over them. Strength measures your character's physical prowess, dexterity measures, measures your character's agility, constitution measures your character's endurance. Intelligence measures your character's ability to reason and remember things uh, kind of logic things out Wisdom measures your character's perception and insight it could also be like street smarts and charisma me- measures the force of your character's personality So later on in this episode, I'll discuss more about each uh, of these abilities and their use but for now That's probably a good start or a summary Your character's ability scores will obviously determine your character's strengths and weaknesses by applying an ability score modifier based on the numerical value of your ability score. So how does this break down? An ability score of say between 10 and 11 gives you an ability score modifier of plus 0. So nothing's added, nothing's taken away. If your ability score is say between 16 and 17, you have an ability score modifier of plus 3 go below 10 and you start getting into negative modifiers. So an ability score of six to seven gives you a modifier of negative two. So how do these play into the game? When you roll a d20 for an ability check, a skill check or some other component, the ability score modifier will be added to your roll to boost or take away from the number. So here's a fun tip. Uh, that is in chapter seven. You don't have to memorize these numbers. Simply take your ability score, subtract ten from it, then divide by two and round down. So let's let's put this to the test. An ability score of uh, fifteen. Okay, so ten minus or fifteen minus ten is five. Five divided by two is two point five rounded down is two. So an ability score of fifteen gives you a plus two bonus. Um, an ability score of 8. So 8 minus 10 is negative 2. Negative 2 divided by 2 is negative 1. So an ability score of 8 is a minus 1. Believe it or not, a lot of people don't know that you can calculate that. So now you do, you're in the know, and you can use it in your next game. So that's that's pretty much the ability scores in a nutshell. All right, we're going to move on to advantage and disadvantage. A standard role in D&D is 1d20 for most of the game mechanics, which includes things like attacks, skill checks, saving throws, ability checks, and so on. Sometimes circumstances give you an edge, or an advantage as it would be, or a disadvantage in a given situation. Sometimes it's based on like a racial or class ability, sometimes it's based on magic, and sometimes it's just because your DM has deemed it so, given the circumstances. Advantage and disadvantage is pretty simple to do. Uh, If you have advantage, you roll 2d20, you take the highest of the two rolls, whereas disadvantage, you take the lowest of the two rolls. If you end up in a situation where you have multiple advantage or disadvantage influences, you still only roll two dice. So if there's a spell that gives you advantage, plus you have an advantage as a class trait, sorry, you only get to roll two dice. However, the same is true for disadvantage, so can't get any worse, right? In some circumstances, you may have one effect granting advantage while another effect grants disadvantage. In this case, they cancel each other out, and you just roll one d20. So you essentially have neither advantage nor disadvantage. So what if you end up with advantage or disadvantage, and there's a game mechanic, such as the Halfling's Lucky Trait, which lets you reroll or replace the d20? You get to choose which die to reroll. So obviously, you're going to go for the lowest, unless you need lower. but Mostly you go for the lowest. Understanding advantage and disadvantage is fairly easy. Knowing when to use it is a little more complicated. If you use a tool like DD Beyond, some of the feats or traits will indicate advantage or disadvantage with, I think it's a red D or a green A next to it, uh, whatever happens to have advantage or disadvantage. So, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. It's easy enough to figure out. And if you have one of those tools, you can just look. And if you're still not sure after all that, just ask your DM. I'm going to briefly touch on proficiency bonus because I've touched on it before. Uh, We talked about it in chapter one, but just as a reminder, at level one your character starts with a plus two proficiency bonus. What that means is any weapon, spell, skill, tools, or saving throws that you have proficiency in will grant you an additional plus two over and above your ability modifier or any other modifier. So if you've got a proficiency in stealth, for example, and you have a plus two to your dexterity modifier, you now add plus four your d20 when you roll a stealth check, plus two for the dex, plus two for the proficiency. Much like many of the other game mechanics, including advantage and disadvantage, your proficiency bonus cannot be applied more than once to any given role, so if multiple rules allow you to add your proficiency, you only add it once. However, if you have expertise in any given skill or ability, your proficiency bonus is now double, but again, expertise can only be applied once. So that's it in a nutshell. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse with this one. I'm going to move on. All right, on to ability checks. Uh, ability checks are another area we've discussed before, uh, but just to recap, an ability check compares a character's innate talent against some non-combat challenge. An example might be breaking down a door, might require a strength check, or jumping over a gap may require a strength athletics check and we'll get into ability checks with skills in just a moment. There's some generic guidelines regarding difficulty class, or DC, which are outlined in this chapter. So if it's a weak, flimsy door, your DC might be a 10. If it's, say, the sturdy oak door with steel hinges, it might require a DC of 20 in order to break down. What this means is that you have to roll a d20 out all your ability modifiers, and that roll, plus proficiency or whatever has to meet or exceed the DC in order to be successful. Now sometimes you're going to try to oppose other creatures' or characters' abilities in sort of a contest. In the Player's Handbook, they use a great example which is trying to grab a magic ring that has fallen onto the floor. If both characters go after the ring, they can roll a contested ability check such as Dexterity or Athletics. And whoever ends up with the higher score gets the ring. If they if the contested rolls are the same number, if they basically tie, then it's basically homeostasis. So in our example, if the ring, if both parties roll an 18, neither person gets the ring, and the ring stays on the floor in the same state it was before they started. In a similar example, if one character is holding the door shut and another one is trying to push it open, if they tie, the door stays in its partially shut, you know, position. Uh, so Kind of win by default on that one if you're trying to keep the door closed. There are other contests that they don't talk about nearly enough in this chapter, in, in my humble opinion. Um, I'm talking about contested roles that require opposing skills, which is best illustrated with, say, an example. Um, so you have a rogue trying to sneak up on another character or creature. The rogue is going to roll a dexterity stealth check, and the creature is going to roll a wisdom perception check whichever role is higher determines the outcome. So if the rogue wins, he or she will successfully sneak up on the creature. Alternatively, if the creature's perception wins out, the rogue fails and the creature now knows someone is there. And another example um, might be using intimidation or deception to manipulate an NPC, which would be an opposed role by an insight check. Just a quick note here, you know, I come from the world of third edition where skills were a big deal and probably overcomplicated, if I'm willing to admit it. However, in fifth edition, there's quite a debate about contested roles where many DMs prefer to just assign a DC in lieu of a contested role. A perfect example would be intimidation. If the target is hard to intimidate, just assign it a DC of 20 and be done with it. Other DMs put less weight on the role and want the player to act out the scenario and use the monologue to determine if it's successful or not. What's great about D&D is that it does allow for variant rules, or as we like to call them, house rules sometimes, which allows you to customize the game to your preferences or your player's preference. So don't take what I say here as canon, because there's definitely more than one way to skin a wyvern. So the six abilities cover a wide range of capabilities, and these can actually get more focused through the the use of skills, which dials in on a specific aspect of an ability. Dexterity refers to the character's agility as a whole, but a rogue is going to have focus on dexterity skills, such as stealth and sleight of hand. For example, intelligence represents a character's memory and recon- uh, sorry, reasoning, but a wizard may have unique body of knowledge when it comes to arcana. Rangers may have a generally decent wisdom, but may have a special talent with animal handling skills. So skills can also have proficiency and even expertise bonuses. So rogue may have like a plus two ability modifier to his or her dex. But with expertise, that may become a plus six to stealth or better. Because stealth is a focus in on a dex ability. Hopefully you get the point. Skills take abilities to the next level and provide four focus for the characters. And the DM will determine when specific skills are more appropriate than a general ability check. Again, there are debates in D&D world whether 5e has skill checks, whether they call it skill checks. Uh, And admittedly, that's more of a third edition thing. Um, But I still use the terminology, whether out of habit or convenience is yet to be determined. If you prefer, you can ask for an ability check with a skill. So for example, you can say, give me a strength athletics check. So there's a couple of sidebars here I want to make sure I mention. Um, Passive checks and working together. Passive checks are an ability that you have basically all the time. It's innate and you don't roll for it. Passive perception is an example. If you have a plus 12 as your passive perception, anything that involves a perception check with a DC 12 or lower, you automatically succeed on. This becomes particularly annoying for DMs when characters reach higher levels and their passive scores become like 18 and 22. It's ridiculous. You can also gain some benefit If your characters work together, so let's say you're searching for a room or a hidden door, your character can aid another character, and the one with the highest investigation skill will roll the search at advantage. Or you and the other person can roll independently. However you want to do it is fine. Um, But by working together, you basically give both of the dice rolls to the character with the best ability. That's the best way to do it. A DM might also require a group check um, where all characters have to make an ability check. If at least half the group succeeds, the whole group succeeds. This is based on the idea that the group is working together to accomplish a combined goal. For example, you might be trying to sneak past some guards as a group. If the group succeeds overall, you can roleplay that one of the character's uh, low rolls almost stepped on a twig, uh, but another member of the party helped prevent this disaster. So that's kind of working together group checks and passive abilities. All right, now we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of this chapter. Um, At the beginning of the episode, I promised to go into more details about the abilities. There's a great deal of information going through using each ability section. Um, I won't go through all of it, but I would like to touch on some important things to note. Starting with strength. So strength, as I mentioned before, provides an indicator of physical prowess. Some things you can do with strength include uh, forcing open a stuck locked or barred door, breaking free of bonds, pushing through a tunnel that's too small, hanging onto a wagon while being dragged behind it, uh, tipping over a statue, or keep a boulder from rolling out of control. So strength, uh, strength also plays a role in your character's attack and damage roles for melee attacks. So when you roll to attack with a melee weapon, you include your strength ability modifier. And on a successful hit, you also add that strength ability modifier to the overall damage. I also kind of feel like lifting and carrying is one of those topics that gets lost somewhere. So while we're talking about strength, I'd like to try and shed a little bit of light on these areas. So your character's carrying capacity is your strength ability score, not the modifier, the score, multiplied by 15 as weight in pounds that you can carry or lift uh, unencumbered. So if your character has a strength of 18, you can lift or carry 270 pounds, no problem. Most times your character doesn't have to worry about these numbers, which is why it kind of gets overlooked. But if you want your character to push, drag or lift a heavy object, the max you can hold is twice your lifting and carrying capacity or your strength modifier times 30. So however If you try to carry anything over your normal carrying capacity, your character speed drops to five feet. So if you normally have 30 feet, 40 feet, doesn't matter. You're five feet when you're completely encumbered like that. All of this assumes that you have a medium sized creature for every size above medium, you can double the capacity and how much can be uh, pushed, dragged or lift below that it it halves. So simple enough, right? Um, Dexterity. Uh, is, again, the measurement of your character's agility, uh, your basic reflexes. Agility skills include things like acrobatics, sleight of hand, and stealth. Uh, I forgot to mention that strength includes like uh, athletics. So dexterity uh, examples include being able to control a heavily laden cart on a steep descent, Um, steering a chariot around tight turns, being able to pick a lock, disable a trap, um, tie up a prisoner, uh, wriggle free of bonds instead of breaking free, um, play stringed instruments, uh, craft a smaller detailed object. These are all dexter- dexterity-based um, activities. Dexterity also influences your attack and damage roles for ranged attacks instead of melee attacks. So just as strength influences melee, dexterity influences range. For your ranged attacks, you will add your dexterity ability modifier to the attack roll or damage roll and damage rolls. Dexterity also plays an impact on your character's armor class or AC, assuming you're not wearing armor that negates it. Of course, we, we, we talked about this in chapter five, so I'm not really going to rehash it here. Finally, your dexterity also plays a role in your initiative order. So when you roll your initiative, you will add your dexterity modifier, and we'll actually talk about this more in chapter nine. So Constitution, that's the next one. Constitution is a measurement of health and stamina. So basically what the player's handbook is calling your character's vital force. There are actually no skills associated with Constitution. Um, And con checks are actually fairly uncommon. Some examples of a situation where you might require a Constitution check are being able to hold your breath, uh, march or labor for hours without rest. Going without sleep, surviving without food and water, um, downing an entire stein of ale in one go. These are all con-based things. Where con does play a role is your hit points. If you are playing a meat shield like a barbarian, you want a decent constitution bonus because for every level your character takes, you add the constitution modifier to the HP role, which increases your character's overall max hit points. Um, the next one is intelligence and again just to recap intelligence is all about mental acuity being able to think through a problem or recall facts it's the ability score of the learned Um, people who are well educated have a high intelligence there are five skills related to intelligence um, arcana history investigation nature and religion most of these are knowledge-based um, but investigation is about finding clues and piecing together information. Perception and investigation are often confused. If you're actively searching, looking for clues, feeling around, etc., then you are investigating. If you're looking, listening, trying to perceive or, or sense something, you're using perception. Uh, some examples of intelligence checks include uh, communicating with a creature without using words, uh, estimating the value of a precious item, being able to pull together a disguise to pass by as a city guard, uh, forging a document, recalling lore about craft or trade, craft or trade, I can't talk tonight, this is crazy, Uh, or win a game of skill that requires intelligence. It's also important to remember that wizard's magic is based off of intelligence, which will determine the difficulty of the spells cast by that wizard. Um, And then we have wisdom, which is how attuned you are to your character or how attuned your character is to the world around you. Wisdom measures your intuition and perception. We've talked about that. Wisdom includes reading body language, understanding feelings, making observations about the world around you, and and so on. Wisdom skills include things like animal handling, insight, medicine, perception, and survival. Um, When it comes to spellcasting, druids, clerics, and rangers use wisdom as their spell-casting ability, which, like intelligence for wizards, determines the saving throw of the spells they cast. Okay, and finally there's charisma, which I believe is fairly misunderstood most of the time. Charisma doesn't necessarily mean you are gorgeous. It's a force of presence uh, as well. Being confident, well-spoken, charming, even imposing and scary will be determined by your character's charisma. Charisma skills include... Uh, deception, intimidation, performance, and persuasion. And spell catchers that are based in charisma includes bards, sorcerers, and warlocks, which again determines the saving throw of the spell. So that's the six uh, abilities in um, a bigger nutshell. <laughs> All right, we're going to finish up chapter seven with saving throws, or just saves, as some people call them. Saving throws determine your character's ability to resist some effects like a spell, trap, poison, disease, and so on. If your character is in a certain type of risks, you will have to roll a saving throw. To do this, you simply roll a 1d20 and the appropriate ability modifier. So dodging a fireball requires you to roll a dexterity saving throw, for example. Um, just to note, each class provides proficiency in at least two saving throws. So be mindful of those bonuses when you're rolling your saves. So that wraps up chapter seven. Uh, We'll move on to chapter eight of the Player's Handbook. I'm throwing chapter eight into this episode because I feel like it's fairly short and probably doesn't really need its own separate episode. This chapter provides some rules and guidance on the passage of time, movement, the environment, social interactions, resting, and what may happen in between adventures. So time, time is a constant, except in D&D where it's very, very squishy. Depending on the situation, your DM will determine how time is measured. Sometimes it's minutes. Sometimes you're traveling across country and in moments you travel for several hours. Sometimes you might even skip ahead days depending on the storyline. To me though, time feels more skewed um, during combat than anything else, where everything happens in rounds and a round represents six seconds of activity. You may spend an hour on a decent combat and go maybe 10 rounds or so. For you, the player, your whole night may be invested in combat. For your characters, you spent a minute defeating your foes. So if your DM is anything like me, time is less constant and sometimes even guesswork. Um, I tend to approximate time of day, whereas some DMs may be more disciplined when it comes to it my focus is generally more about the story and less about the mechanics sometimes and I, I do lose track of time with my characters and i'll i'll take kind of a wild guess as to approximately what time it is <laughs> the, my uh my gaming group is very very tolerant of, of my little nuances <laughs> thank you guys um moving on to movement uh, it also varies throughout a campaign but the player's handbook does specify travel speeds which in, can help both players and DMs determine how long it might take to get to a particular destination. Traveling on foot or forced march versus traveling on a mount or vehicle doesn't really change the distance the party can cover per se. Um, They can, you know, gallop for a little while, but you can't do that perpetually. There are, of course, certain mounts and vehicles that can move much faster, and they're outlined in this section as well so if you're riding you know say a camel you're going to go a lot slower than if you're you know going cross country on a dragon the party uh even individual characters can choose a pace between normal fast or slow if the party decides to move quickly they suffer a minus five pen penalty to passive perception whereas if the party moves slow they can move quietly and use stealth and try to remain undetected in some cases i might even give bonus to an npc's ability to detect the party if they're moving fast because I assume they are being more reckless. The party may encounter difficult terrain such as a deep dense forest or a nasty swampland that movement becomes more difficult. In these circumstances, the party's movement speed is cut in half. Uh, Movement takes multiple forms as well, doesn't just mean walking or running. Characters can also climb, swim, crawl, jump, uh, and even fly their way to glory. In some, in some circumstances. When you're climbing, swimming, or crawling, your movement is cut in half as well. And in some situations, climbing might even require an athletics check. There are exceptions, of course. When it comes to jumping, your strength ability score will determine how far or high you can jump. And it's broken into two options, basically, a long jump or a high jump. Long jump, you can cover a number of feet distance-wise up to your strength score. So as long as you get a 10-foot head start run. Without a head start, a standing jump, you'll get half that distance. When you're jumping for distance, the height is not considered, and the idea being you're probably trying to jump over some gap or chasm, uh, maybe a stream. You also have to make an athletics check here too if you have to clear some low obstacle, though it can't be taller than one fourth of the jump's distance. If it's taller than a quarter of the distance, you're just going to hit it. So, so if your strength is 18, you can jump 18 feet with a running start, or 9 feet with a standing jump. If you're trying to jump over a 16-foot chasm, and you clear, you can clear an obstacle of 4 feet or lower. Uh, hopefully, that made sense. <laughs> High jumps let you jump straight up in the air uh, of feet equivalent to three plus your strength modifier. So in this case, again, if your strength is 18, your strength modifier is now 4. So you can jump up to 7 feet high. Again, if you have at least a 10 foot of movement before the jump. And again, that's halved if you do a standing jump. You always round down as well, just so you know. You can also reach up a distance of 1.5 times your height when you're jumping straight up. As you're traveling, you do have a few things to consider, both as a character and regarding the game mechanics. Your DM will probably want to know what your marching order is. This will help the DM determine which characters might be impacted by what objects, creatures, traps, and so on. You also want to consider stealth, uh, which we discussed a moment ago. If you're trying to remain unseen, your characters may be able to roll a group stealth check. Of course, your DM will have uh, some work to do here as well. He or she must be aware of the passive perception of different characters. So, if your DM's lazy like me, sometimes he may ask you what your passive perception is, and moving stealthily will slow your movement speed as well. Um, there are a few other tasks you need to be aware of while traveling, uh, such as navigation, mapping, tracking, and forage, foraging. All of these are broken down in the player's handbook under this chapter, so definitely give it a read. Now, moving on to the environment, your character's environment, that is. There are a few obscure things in this section that are probably going to be one of those things that your DM will have to rifle through pages to find when uh, you need the information. One is falling. Uh, Just basically for every 10 feet of falling, your character will take 1d6 points of bludgeoning damage. When the creature finally hits the ground, of course, good news is uh, there's a max of 20d6. So if you have over 120 hit points, you should be fine. Once you land, Uh, You are considered prone. We'll talk about this in a later episode. Suffocating is another issue you probably won't run into very often, but creatures or characters can hold their breath for a number of minutes equal to one plus their constitution modifier. There is a minimum of 30 seconds in case your constitution sucks (laughs) and has minuses. Once the creature runs out of breath, it will survive a number of rounds equal to its constitution modifier Again, a minimum of one. I remember one round is six seconds. So if you have you know plus one to your constitution modifier, you're gonna live for six seconds at that point. Once that time is expired, the creature drops to zero hit points and is now dying and it cannot help uh, cannot be helped until it can breathe again. Another component of the environment is vision. Being able to see is a huge part of your character's ability to perceive the world in most characters' cases, of course. The Player's Handbook breaks down vision into three categories. Uh, you have bright light, dim light, and darkness. Bright light will allow most creatures to see normally, which includes sources of light such as like, torches, lanterns, and fires. Dim light or shadows provide some challenges by slightly obscuring areas, giving a character a disadvantage on perception. Uh, And then you have darkness, which creates considered uh, heavily obscured areas, creating a blindness type effect. Luckily, some creatures and classes have a way to mitigate this. A creature with dark vision can see in dim light up to a specific range as if it was uh, bright. But the caveat is the creature sees in black and white at that point. Can't see colors. Blindsight allows a creature to perceive its surroundings without sight and in some cases without eyes. True sight can see normally even in magical darkness. Also part of the environment is sustenance, food and water. So your character, characters with very few exceptions, will need food and water as they travel. Most creatures require one pound of food each day, or your character can ration food and eat half a pound of food per day and it counts as only half a day without food. Now characters can go a max of three days plus their Constitution modifier, again minimum one, before exhaustion starts to set in from not eating. Each day after this max has been hit, the character takes one point of exhaustion, and once a character hits six points of exhaustion, he or she dies of starvation. Uh, Similarly, you have water. uh, Characters need one gallon of water per day or two gallons of water per day if it's in, you're in a hot environment. If the character drinks half of what they need, they must succeed on a DC 15 Constitution saving throw or suffer one level of exhaustion at the end of the day. However, if the character gets less than half of the water they need in a daily uh, in, in a day, they automatically suffer the point of exhaustion at the end of the day. Again, until the character hits six points of exhaustion and dies. Should probably let you know that when you hit five points of exhaustion, the creature speed becomes zero and can't move. So basically, if you're alone and at five points of exhaustion, your character will have one more day of agonizing existence before they die, (laughs) unless they get some outside help. The last part of the environment section deals with interacting with objects. So basically, your character can interact with stuff. It can pull levers, push doors, and so on. And your character can also damage most objects with spells or weapons. I mean, that's pretty much it, but as a general rule, you can try to do anything you want. Uh, the DM will let you know if if it happens or, or what happens from there. Okay, let's talk about social interaction. So as you move through the game, you will have the opportunity to interact with characters in the game. Uh, we call these characters NPCs or non-player characters. Uh, the section This section of the player's handbook basically tells you what you probably have already guessed. They can be friend or foe or indifferent, Uh, but what you may not know is that there are two ways to socially interact with NPCs. The first is through role play, uh, and the second is through ability checks. So let's break this down a bit. Role play is basically theater. You are your character engaging with other creatures that may be your friend, maybe your enemy. Uh, You might know, you might not know, but from this role play, you may get information, lore, or even deception, intimidation, and lies. Your interactions will either be descriptive, basically you're explaining what you're doing, or active, you act out what you're doing. Both are acceptable, but a lot of people like me uh, love to take on this new personality, even new accents, if you will, and really engage with the game. There are some fun examples in this chapter to help illustrate both of these options. Ability checks use dice to determine the outcome of interactions, and sometimes it goes hand-in-hand hand with the roleplay. Let's, let's see if I can give you an example here. My rogue, we'll call him Titus, is trying to get past the city guards as a restricted part of the city, or into a restricted part of the city. During this interaction, Titus decides to try to use deception to trick them into letting him pass, and he says something like, Oi, you there, friend. Uh, you're never going to believe this. I, I left the docks, and I was in such a hurry it left me satchel sitting, sitting on the boat. I need to get in for a few minutes and grab it. Just be sure to check in as uh, as soon as I'm done. At this point, I know, that's terrible. (laughs) At this point, the DM will ask me to roll a deception check. If I roll high enough, the guard will believe me. If I don't, well, the guard may try to lock me up. But in that example, I used my role play to initiate the ability roll as part of the game mechanics. Hopefully that makes sense. You know, have a little fun with it. It's a game. You're supposed to have fun. Enjoy it. Alright, moving on. As you go through your campaign, your characters are eventually going to run out of spells or just need rest. Sometimes a short rest, which is at least one hour, is enough to recoup some hit points so you're ready to continue on. To recover hit points, you can spend one or more uh, hit die up to the character's maximum during the short rest. So basically, you choose how many you're going to roll, you roll them, and then you add your Constitution modifier to regain the hit points a uh, long rest of at least eight hours, uh, where the character sleeps for at least six of those hours, meaning um, you perform more, no more than two hours of light activity uh, during the long rest. If the long rest is interrupted for at least one hour, your character has to start over again. If you successfully complete a long rest, the character regains all, list, all lost hit points, and in most cases spells, and half your hit dice that you may have spent during any short rest. So basically, if you have hit dice, eight hit dice, and you used all eight during your character's short rest, you get four back, which means you only have four to use during the day if you opt to take another short rest. You also get one long rest per 24 hour period, so no double dipping there on the long rest. So the last part is just in between adventures. So. Basically, you may experience some downtime, um, extended downtime even, maybe spend a few days in a safe city, do some shopping. During that time, you can recoup, do a little research, craft something, practice your profession, maybe even earn a little coin or do some training. There are, of course, some caveats to some of these activities. Um, So I suggest you read through the chapter because it's all explained in the Player's Handbook. And that's it for chapter eight. So that's it for today. If you've enjoyed this podcast and are interested in supporting this bad habit of mine, just point your favorite web browser to geektastic.link support. I do appreciate you joining me. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, be sure to tell your friends. Uh, if you'd like to visit me on social media, send me an email. Open your favorite web browser to geektastic.link contact. I urge you to like and subscribe my podcast on your favorite app. If you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, etc., you can see a list at geektastic.link podcast. Uh, also, if you'd like to leave me a voice message and possibly have it played on my podcast with your permission, of course, feel free to visit geektastic.link voicemail. So again, be kind to each other, have fun, and always, always stay geektastic. Thank you, guys.